What's your name? Brad Baluchian. What's the full title of your new book? The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. When you're not driving around the country in search of baseball players and their afterlife, what do you do for a living? I write as a freelancer and I teach biology at Merritt College in Oakland, California. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, Authors Week concludes with a fascinating new book from Brad Baluchin. He bought one pack of baseball cards, one pack, Tops 1986, and then he set out to meet all of them in person and write a book about it. He did not have a book deal in advance, put his life on hold with a significant financial risk, but 48 days and 11,341 miles later, he completed his journey, although really, the process of getting the book published was just beginning. Author Brad Baluchin is next on Life Around the Scenes. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate you spending some time with me to talk about your new book. Oh, thanks for having me on, Josh. How many interviews had you done in your life before this book came out? And how many interviews are you thinking you're up to now promoting this book? Wow. I mean, I've probably done a handful, a couple of interviews in my life. And I think I've done probably like 120, 130 interviews. And then like really that many, it's it's been pretty crazy. Well, I'm going to try and think of different questions and topics my apologies if we end up covering a lot of the same ground that you've covered in these 120 or so interviews, but it actually made me think about how your perspective changes about an athlete who gets asked the same question over and over again, or has to revisit topics about their, about their life, their career, their game that they may not want to revisit. And I'm wondering what your perspective is like now that you've done a whole bunch of these and been on the other end of it. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I under I think I'm much more sympathetic to the athletes that get asked the same things over and over again. Um, but I also understand from the journalists or the interviewers' perspective, you don't know whoever's watching the interview or listening to the interview, you don't know if they've ever heard this person talk before. So you, you know, you kind of owe it to the listener as well to catch them up to speed if they're not familiar with the person and the topic. So like a lot of these, when talking about the media and, and athletes, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's stuff on sort of both sides of, you know, where you can see the perspectives of, of each side. Um, but I was very aware of that when I was on the trip meeting the players, trying, to, one of the things I, I tried to do was not ask them the same questions they had been asked. And that's also because the book really isn't focused on baseball as much as 
them as people and their personal lives and what happened when they were done playing. So I, I kind of had the luxury of not, you know, putting them through the ringer of asking the same questions that they've been asked many times. So the idea was born while sitting at the Oakland Coliseum. You had an entire section to yourself, as I read, and you decided to order. Was it from your phone, from the actual seat during the game that you decided to order the one pack of baseball cards? It's funny that you all see, you know, like we talk about social distancing now and at the Oakland Coliseum, there already is social distancing <laughs> right. because there's like 6,000 people there. Right. Um, so I ordered actually, So I ordered multiple packs off of eBay because as I say in the footnote in the book, if I opened just one and too many guys had passed away, then um, it wouldn't make for a very good book <laughs> tracking down <laughs> people that are dead. Um, so, but I also didn't, I didn't mix cards between packs. So it was, you know, the integrity of the pack that I ended up writing about was always kept intact. So again, you had this idea in 2014, six years later, this book has come out. The road trip that you did was the summer of 2015. Provide us the timeline from the time that the road trip finishes until now of getting this book published. Yeah, so I got home in August of 2015, exhausted, but really happy that I knew I had something good. Uh, and then I took a few months to just kind of recuperate. And then um, at that point, you know, when you write a nonfiction book, you don't have to, you don't want to have to write the whole book first before you try to get the deal. You write a proposal, but the proposal is pretty extensive. So my proposal was probably way too long, like 120 pages. But I spent several months in the first part of 2016, rewriting my proposal. And then we went out to a few publishers in New York to kind of test the waters, trying to get a book deal. And they all passed, but they, they had good feedback. And, you know, at that point, the book was still a little bit rough and it, it needed a lot of work. So I went back and kind of re reframed things, did a whole rewrite. And then probably it was in 2017 when my agent at the time said, um, I had said, okay, what do you think? And he actually thought he wanted me to go in a very different direction. He was pushing me to, to take myself out of it largely and to focus more on just strict baseball. And that wasn't the vision that I had for the book. So we parted ways amicably. And then I got another agent and then we did like a very, a much broader, um, uh, pass to try to see if somebody would, would, pick it up. And that's when I racked up the rejections and I counted like 30, 38 rejections overall. And at that point that, that agent said, I think we've reached the end of the road here, which was very demoralizing. And I said, well, I don't think so. So we split up and then I just went to university of Nebraska press and they were immediately interested. And Rob Taylor, the editor there was fantastic. Um, and it, so that was like late 2018 so I actually wrote most of the book in about five months in the first part of 2019. Um, so I, but I, you know, I had in those interceding years, I had transcribed everything. I had all the research ready. So it really was just sort of sitting down and, and, and cranking it out. That's something. 38 rejections and all. I, I, I must say, and I'm not just saying this to toot your horn, but I liked the path that you ultimately did choose in including yourself in it. And I think it hits on the themes of, of just road tripping and going across country and, and doing deep thinking. And um, one of the words that came to my mind reading it was about vulnerability. 
Um, the players being vulnerable, you also making yourself vulnerable by talking about different things from your life. And I was thinking about this, that there's two different forms of that. One of them is, okay, well, it's vulnerable when I'm writing this in my computer. And then there's the different form of vulnerability when total strangers now know this about me, people like myself and thousands of others who are reading this book. And I'm wondering your, your thoughts on, on the vulnerability themes for both you and for the athletes that you found. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you, if I had to sum up the meaning of the book in a word, it would be vulnerability. Um, that is the, that's the whole point. That's the meaning of the book that, uh, we tend to look at these athletes as these strong, powerful figures that we worship and idolize. And, you know, traditionally it's been for their sort of their brute strength, but the book really, I think, looks at it it forces you to look at strength in a different way and understand that in my opinion sort of real courage or strength comes from vulnerability and so it's a lot you know it's it's in some ways a lot harder to to talk about your feelings and to be vulnerable to be open than to do the things that are traditionally considered you know examples of strength Um, so I, I was really impressed by how open the players were And then I was always, I mean, I'm someone that's just sort of very open myself in my life. So it wasn't necessarily as hard for me to go there. Um, But it's still, I mean, even, you know, there's that term vulnerability hangover where like, you know, you really put yourself out there. And then afterwards, you know, sometimes you do kind of feel a little bit open, exposed, you know, but I think on the whole, it's better to, to be air on the side of being more open. Yeah, and along those lines, this uh, a tweet was sent to me uh, the other day. Uh, I think it was like a week or two ago. Um, Kirsten Bartlett tweeted it out, and uh, and this, she tweeted the following: "I'm pretty sure that podcasts now are just an excuse for adult men to call each other on the phone and have a meaningful one-hour conversation." <laughs> and that is the truest of truisms. Is, is uh, that a stranger? <laughs> you know this person? I do not know this person, uh, okay. but the person who sent it to me uh, definitely knows me. Um, you had meaningful conversations in person. Now you're having them in podcasts. You had them with total strangers and your ex and your father. And I'm wondering how the process of getting adult men comfortable with having a meaningful conversation with you, especially when you're a total stranger and you're approximately 20 years younger than them. Yeah. Um, I think some of it was my approach to the interview and when I would meet somebody, I mean, I think it makes a big difference to be in person. I mean, you know, zoom can only take you so far. Um, just all the, the nonverbal things, the, the three-dimensionality of being in person. And then I also tried to set up situations that would perhaps allow them or allow the players to feel more comfortable. So if it's, you know, the difference between saying, I want to talk to you on the phone or even in person at a, you know, at a coffee shop between 1 and 2 p.m. and we're going to sit across the table with tape recorder right between us versus hey, I'm going to come to you in your hometown and maybe we can go bowling or we can go to the zoo or we can go to an art museum. And, you know, being able to do that in the book just makes people more at ease and more comfortable and also makes for a much richer journalistic environment because as a writer, I'm not just listening to what you're saying. I'm also writing down everything about what's happening around and 
what the environment looks like and you know all these other things and there's a lot more material there when you when you vary the environment so as a so as a writer i that was a very conscious choice um and then i think i i would be very i was very upfront with the players and saying that I understand you've been trained to say, to talk in cliches. Like I, I know, like you want to say a certain answer and I've heard it all before. And I feel like that I still know nothing about you. So I'm interested in, in really finding out who you are and hope that you'll be honest with me and I will be honest with you and, you know, tell my own story. I mean, really it's about building trust in a relationship and having a conversation versus looking at, at it as this like reporter, you know, asking them questions. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that worked and it makes a lot of sense. I think it's harder to, it's one thing to get somebody on the phone, it's another thing to get them at a coffee shop and it's even harder to get them to commit to go somewhere else. But I'm glad that you right. were able to do that because I do think it makes it better. Well, well also, I, also think, I also think it's about, it's about showing them that you've done your homework, right? I mean, I've done interviews where the person has not, even read the book or heard of the book. And it's like, you know, it, it's so much, you know, if, but if I, I had done a, uh, you know, nine months of research on every guy and I had a thick file. And so I would, I made it clear that I, I had done my part to, to learn whatever I could about them. Like I had maximized that part of it. Now I needed them to give me what I couldn't get on my own. I don't know if the right word is less threatening, um, especially since that's two words, but because you're, not someone who's writing a story in the newspaper every day or a column in a magazine no. because you come from such a different background. Do you think that maybe the, a lot of the players were a little bit disarmed and a little bit more comfortable with the idea that yeah. I don't know who this person is, as opposed to this person I see making hot takes on TV all the time. Right. And that's a great point. Like, you know, um, I was, I'd like to ask you, you know, as a former beat reporter, maybe you have some insight into that, but yeah, I mean, I almost use that to my advantage and said like, Hey, like I'm not one of them. <laughs> like, like I'm, you know, I'm just a scientist and a fan who's writing a book, right? And and that may have helped. Yeah, if you want to ask me anything, you can go ahead and do that too. I don't know how helpful I'll be. Um, let well, me. In, in your in your time as a beat writer, did you ever have a player kind of turn it on you and be, you know, maybe when they got exasperated, like, okay, Josh, well, you tell me what what were you thinking when you when you wrote that typo last night, you know? <laughs> Uh, no, no, no one specifically said that. I, I think that anytime the athlete actually cares to ask you a question about yourself, then it always becomes like this aha moment where like they actually kind of yeah. get that there's a human being that's on the other end of this. Um, you know, the, the thing that stand, one of the things that kind of stands out was during 9-11 when I'm with the Giants in Houston and the country is completely shut down. And I remember myself and the other writers, we got home from a commercial flight and there was a lot of discussion about whether or not the giants would allow us on the charter flight home. And we thought that we could, we thought that we should for a variety of reasons that I don't want to get into. We did not. We ended up flying home commercially uh, a day after the team did. But I remember talking to Sean Dunstan and Dunstan was like, Oh yeah, of course you guys are coming home with us. Why would you not come home with us? And that's one of many reasons why Sean Dunstan's one of my all time favorites is yeah. there was just this humanity of like, why would we leave you here? Like, of course you're going to come with us. And I don't right. know if that answers your question, but um, yeah. Yeah. I think like when the players, when you, you, if the players understand that your, what you're doing is, is, is your profession and your livelihood, the same way what they do on the field is theirs. 
you know, it's not like this is just some hobby that, that you're doing. Then I think the guys that get that, I think, and, and like, like someone like Don Carmen, you know, a lot of the players I talked to, they, they got that. And like Randy Reddy, who's one of the, the best guys in the book, you know, nicest guy. I mean, you know, he, he got that, but he said, you know, one of the things that he said was that um, it would annoy him when after a game, the, the writers would say like, well, when you, you know, when you made that error, how did that make you feel? Or, you know, like, or that kind of question, like, like what happened there on that error? And, and he's like, well, what do you mean? Like, just look at the tape. Like I, I screwed up, you know? And so I think it's a lot about, you know, I think when reporters ask thoughtful questions, the, the athletes give thoughtful answers, but if they don't, the athletes get kind of pissed. Yeah, even like on a micro level, what I do now in the minor leagues, my favorite interviews to do is when someone has been called up to the majors for the first time and they get sent down however many days later or weeks later. And I want to discuss with them the details about the first time they were called up. And sometimes I'll do that with a guy who's new on our team and it happened four years ago. And I don't write out my questions, but I have notes so that I don't forget so that I can stay on point. And even if I say your major, instead of saying, well, your major league debut was talk about it, but it's okay. Your major league debut was on this day. It was an afternoon game. It was at this ballpark. This was the first three hitters that you faced as a pitcher, you know, and then from there, and it's almost like this acknowledgement from them. Okay. He did his homework. He, he yeah. really wants to know this. And I think there's um, and, and I think you're right. It leads to a deeper answer. Yeah. That's, and that's actually like, I mean, that, that's not a, that's not an, it's a small difference. That's a huge, that makes all the difference. Yeah. Um, All right. Let me, um, I'm going to give you three types of rejections and I want you to uh, rank them from most painful rejection to least painful rejection. Now these rejections that I actually experienced or just Uh, in general? Probably. Okay. (laughs) It's something that I've experienced too. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So uh, example one, a former ball player rejects you for an interview. Example two, a cute girl you really like rejects you. Number three, a book publisher rejects your book idea. What's the most painful to least painful of those three rejections? The most painful is the book publisher. The least painful is the girl. Okay. (laughs) For me. (laughs) And why so? Well, I think, you know, with with women, with dating, it's like, I respect that. Like, if you don't, if you don't like me or you're not into like that's, Hey, you just, you know, well, well, I can't do anything about that. Like that's your, that's your choice, you know? <laughs> so that's fine. Um, in terms of the, the athlete, I, you know, I, I, this is the thing that I think this is one of the questions that I wrestle with the most in the book is how upset to be about that, about getting rejected by like, let's say Vince Coleman or Carlton Fisk, you know, that wouldn't talk to me. And in the book, I kind of use that as a device to make it kind of comedic and car- with Carlton Fisk, I go on this crazy, goose chase pretending to be a millionaire to ambush him at this golf course in Florida. It's a very fun chapter. Uh, and, you know, some people have kind of like pushed back on me and been like, Oh, you're kind of a jerk for like, or entitled for thinking that he should talk to you. And I've thought a lot about that. Um, because I, you know, I, I like to think about all, all sides of everything. And I, it brings up this question, you know, how, how responsible are, current athletes and ex-athletes to talk to the media uh and it's one of these like age-old questions right and i think there's a lot of different opinions i don't know that any opinion is sort of right but my opinion is that that when you are in that spotlight and in that role and even after you're out of it that 
that there is because you you earned your livelihood essentially from the public you know giving their money to watch you play there's a certain service aspect to that profession that will always be there and so i you know i i do hold athletes to that standard so when an athlete says no i mean i respect their opinion but i i i think that they should you know give the time where you know where possible um the uh but what and i mean what's your what's your take on that i think in the moment the rejection from the girl is the worst but then you get over it fastest it's like mm-hmm. ripping the band-aid off um and i know that any time that you for myself that an, that an athlete says no to an interview yeah there's this there's this wound but the wound isn't like you hurt my feelings it's i need this for my job especially yeah. when like you're on deadline and you, and you and you need quotes for the next day's newspaper or when okay i have this five minute window of time during my pregame show for the albuquerque isotopes broadcast that i need somebody and i've been thinking that this is the person i'm going to interview and now it's like oh no i have to like now who am i going to interview and what's my backup plan and what's plan c and what's plan d and yeah. um so i think it just kind of like whirls that around um I've been rejected by book publishers. I was not rejected 38 times. I think I would have quit long before 38. I might've quit after three. I definitely would have quit after eight. There's no chance I would have got to 38. So that's, uh, you know, that, that's my opinion of how to rank those. I don't even know if I did rank those. Um, yeah. Uh, well then, you, you know, and then you, you know, the, the point you make bring up about necessity is also something that's interesting to unpack because, you know, okay, you as a beat writer, yeah, you are on a deadline. It's sort of necessary. You know, me as a, you know, writer without a book deal going and finding these athletes to write a book that's really about, you know, it, it's, it's, it's entertainment. It's, it's being, it's, it's thought provoking. It's not necessary. You know, the world doesn't need the wax pack. In, in a in a very direct like applied sense the way we need you know a vaccine right now right <laughs> but at the same time this brings up this you know kind of philosophical argument of like well just because something is not sort of immediately necessary doesn't mean that it's not necessary for sort of the human condition right like we why do we need art and music and books that are about knowledge and ideas like it's not again, solving this direct problem, but it, it is something that's necessary. So you can, you know, you can kind of unpack, be get really into the rabbit hole of, of looking at these things, but it's a great question just to, just to think about what rejection means in these different ways. And certainly from the book publishers, the rejection stung the most because I always thought the book was really good or was going to be good. And the, my vision for it was really good. And the fact that their rejections were not based on the quality, they were like, yeah, this is great but you don't have a giant following. You don't have an Instagram following. You don't have a platform that really pissed me off because it's like, well, what can I do about that? Right. No, I mean, that's an impossible thing. So if you never take a chance on someone who's unknown, you'll never discover new voices. Yeah. I'm, I'm really impressed that you kept trudging on after 38 different rejections. Um, the other thing that I thought interesting about rejection is like, we look at this book now and you know, the, 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 the names on the back, Tyler Kepner and George will and Jason Starr, Jeff Perlman, Ben Lindbergh, Rob Nyer, like all these great minds of who have written baseball books. And, um, 
and now that you, and, and what an amazing concept, I think to myself, but then there was all these publishers who didn't want it. You just mentioned that, but I'm wondering if it's like, I want to give like a middle finger to everyone who, who rejected me. You know, like I know that when I was first trying to get into broadcasting, you would actually mail something to a minor league team with a cassette tape and then you would get a letter back, a rejection letter. And for a long time, I held on to every rejection letter that I got. I still have them. And then it became emails and then I don't want to print out a rejection email or whatever. But, um, but to get back to my question about once the book does come out and all these people have this idea, how does that um, sort of justify this, this belief that you had for a long time? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, yeah, it does feel, the vindication feels great. And, you know, there is that temptation to, like, throw it back in their face and say, I told you so, you know. Uh, I mean, I, but I also recognize that that's not the healthiest thing emotionally and energetically to, to really latch on to. Um, but, no, it's, it, I mean, it's very satisfying. Like, yesterday, I just found out that it made the LA Times bestseller list. And that was huge it was like i mean just looking at the other names michelle obama you know it's like and just knowing that of the the 10 books on that list you know mine had no agent it was from the university of nebraska press i mean all those other books are like six figure advances and giant fancy budgets and marketing campaigns and to see mine in that group knowing that it was all grassroots was enormously satisfying the other thing that that came to my mind reading different chapters was which athletes don't really want to talk about their former career as a ball player and which ones do. And I'll give you an example of um, a couple that I've run across 2014 with the isotopes. Our manager was Damon Barry Hill. Our hitting coach was Franklin Stubbs. Our pitching coach was Glenn Dishman. So all three of these guys I knew either in high school or in college that they were player. I had their baseball cards we had an off day once in Fresno and the four of us went golfing. And I remember just thinking, wow, that's like my baseball card collection has come to life. I'm like golfing with these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of Franklin Stubbs, he was someone who did not want to talk about his career. Um, he wasn't a jerk about it. He just said, I'm a has-been. It's all about the players now. And part of that is because he was a hitting coach and he wanted to focus on, on, on the next but wave. You, of so you like actually tried to ask him questions and he yeah. said, no. It, I mean, he would, he would, every once in a while he would, he would kind of do something, you know, he would do some interviews about his past. Uh, but I could tell that he didn't want to. So I stopped pushing back. And then there's other players that I've come across. Um, we had this guy, David Holman and his father, Brian Holman played in the major leagues for the Mariners and Reds. And, um, and, and he's actually, both of them were a guest on my podcast and Brian loves talking about his career. And it's not because he's trying to pat himself on the back, but he just loves baseball and it's who he is. And he has a memorabilia room in, in his house. And um, he loved talking about not just his success, but also his failures and how it relates to his, um, to his son in life. Anyways, really long-winded warm-up to, uh, to ask you the question of what were the personality traits that led to someone not wanting to talk about their past as a ball player and which ones were a lot more open about it? Well, I think some of the guys that were, even the guys that were really, great and thoughtful and, and friendly still weren't necessarily thrilled about talking about, I mean, they would when I asked them, but someone like, um, let's see, um, like Gary, maybe Gary Templeton or let's see. I mean, even Lee Mazzilli, these guys were great interviews, but it wasn't like they were like fans eager to discuss their careers. They would, you know, they were like, 
okay, what do you want to talk about? And I would ask them and they would answer. So even the guys that were even on the friendlier side are not, I mean, and this is something that I talk about in the book and Don Carmen, who's a sports psychologist says that, you know, he thinks it's because it's too painful to go back there to be reminded of like how, you know, you had, you once had these skills that you can never have again, which is something that almost no other profession can relate to. And it's not like, I mean, you probably are better at your age now than you were at 25 as a writer or, you know, I mean, that doesn't, so athletes, athletics is so strange in that way. Um, and then the guys that didn't want to talk at all, I think that was, which is really like Vince Coleman, Carlton Fisk. Um, those guys, if you just, if you read their history, they'd have a, a long history of being kind of adversarial with the press and, uh, or just kind of cranky. I mean, I think Fisk is someone that is just a recluse, very private. He feels like, you know, if, if he, he just has no obligation or responsibility to talk to the media, Coleman, I think, feels like he was unfairly treated by the media. And, you know, I think Coleman is just kind of a little bit delusional about his own greatness <laughs> and, and not, and, and he is, seems to be lacking in self-awareness about certain things. So, you know, he, he, I was not surprised. In other words, most of these guys, what, what I, what the responses they gave me were consistent with what I read in my research about what, what they were like. I know I'm bouncing all over the place, but I really enjoyed how you went back and found former employees of tops from the manufacturing plants and what it was like for them and how you started and ended the book with them. Um, I admit I never would have even thought about that. And, and even as I'm reading uh, those, those chapters, the beginning and the end, and as a kid who opened up tons and tons of baseball cards, it never occurred to me, like there's people who cut the cards. There's, it never really like occurred to me. It was just, I just go buy the baseball card from the local store. Um, where did you even find the former employees of tops? That was actually in some ways harder than finding the players. Um, yeah. Cause there's not because, Wikipedia pages and other things they're going to put yeah. them in the news. So I started, I, I went to tops and I and I said, Hey, you know, I'm really looking to find some people that worked for you back in like 1985. Now they've gone through a lot of changes. The factory is no longer where it used to be. If, you know, there's basically no one there now that was there back then. And so they, you know, they gave a, a minimum effort and, but they were not certainly going to, go dig deep for me. Right. So I was sort of didn't know where to go next. You know, I did the typical you know, Googling and everything. And then I realized that one of the best sources for information um, about a local, local issues and local people are like his, are local historical societies. And most towns have something like that, you know, basically little small civic organizations that, are that you know are interested in the history of their town and so i reached out to a couple of historical societies that were located in the in the county or the area where the factory was located and then it was like jackpot like right. oh yeah i know this person and this person and this person and you know and, it, and it's kind of i mean when you go from writing about like athletes to writing about just everyday people it is for it is nice because everyday people are usually much more excited to talk to you, you know? right <laughs> so it's like you don't have to go through it's not such hard work to get them to, to talk and so you know it wasn't it was once I identified those people they were so helpful and I mean really like and I, I mean I, I only used a, a small section of the 
material I got, but I had them explain to me in painstaking detail every step of the card making process. And they did it. They wrote out like every little tiny little detail of it for me. So, um, but you know, part of that, doing that, having the book open and close with them was, it was very intentional and it, in a way it kind of is almost meant as like a, an ego check on the players themselves in that the player, like baseball's power is, goes way beyond these players, you know, that the, that the, the, the power of the game and the, and the, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, the power of the game in, in our society is so deep that, that, and it, and its power lies in the ability to build community and, and a sense of camaraderie. And that basically like, these people that worked at the factory as evidenced by when I went and found them in 2017 and met up with them and they were at, you know, they were all sitting around laughing and telling old stories and joking. And they were like a little family that, is what makes baseball so great, right? That's, and it extends way beyond the field. So I wanted to bookend with that scene to remind everybody that the reason why we love this is, has more really to do with our relationships with each other and, and the people around us and people we love than anything about these players per se. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that, especially during this pandemic, because when I think about what I miss, it's yeah, I miss the games and I miss calling games, but I miss the camaraderie with the broadcaster from the other team and everyone in the press box and, you know, um, the ushers at our ballpark, they miss the camaraderie of saying hello to people who've sat in the same section for 10 years and, you know, all, all of those, um, different types of things. Um, what was the most fascinating part of the, of the process of printing baseball cards that you were not able to put into the book that you can share with us? Well, it's not, I mean, it doesn't make the most riveting listening, but it's just sort of like the, I mean, the, the art, the, the minutia of, um, you know, having these sort of randomized cards on a sheet and then they have, you know, card cutting where they put them in these, these, you know, these, these slitters that cut down and then they have to reposition them and then they go to the DF line and then they, you know, it's all these different steps that, um, you know, just like assembly line factory work that, um, you know, I could have put in there, but it would, I just didn't think for, from a reader's perspective, I thought it would have bogged down the pacing of the book. And what, you know, I really, really tried to make, you know, I think when, when writers get to be like super famous, they can kind of afford to be super indulgent in, in their little, you know, asides and little tangents. But when you're, when you're trying to prove yourself, you, you got to be crisp and have that pacing. And so I really tried to keep the book moving all the time. When you were a kid and you were opening up baseball cards or going through a, like what cards did you get most excited? If you pulled this player from a card, who got, who who were the ones that got you most excited as a kid? Yeah. And we can use the actual pack from the book as an example. I mean, I would, you know, Don Carmen would have made me happiest and Rance Mullenix and, and Lee Mazzilli, all the guys that were not the stars. So I was not, I didn't, you know, I (laughs) didn't get that as excited about Dwight Gooden or Carlton Fisk because I always like the underdogs a lot more. I think about, well, so I wanted the stars. I wanted guys from the A's and the Giants, but the cards that also got excited me were just a unique photo. Like Tim Flannery always posed with his surfboard and Glenn Hubbard had a snake around his neck. I remember that. On on some card. And, And 
And if there was any type of personality, I remember Rick Honeycutt was signing an autograph uh, and he had like his cool shades and there's all these kids asking him for his autograph. I think it was an upper deck. And I remember when I got Rick Honeycutt to sign a baseball card of him signing baseball cards. Um, I remember just thinking that that was really unique when it, when like the, 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 the card itself had a, had a story behind it besides just this player's famous or this player's just common, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, I, I think that always drew your attention when you had things like that going on. What are uh, your old collection, not the new packs, but the old collection, what are you doing with them? I know a lot of people are going back through their collections during this pandemic. Where are your cards and from your childhood and what do you plan on doing with them? Um, they're, they're right here in the closet. Um, and I, I pull them out sometimes and I flip through them. And, um, I mean, I don't think I've got any specific plans for them other than it's always like a, a nice little nostalgia trip to take them out and flip through them and, you know, remind myself of, you know, look at the backs and, you know, it's always like reading the little comments on the trivia on the backs. And, you know, it just, it reminds me of how well I knew those guys back then as well. What's next for you? Another book about baseball, more biology, or more both? <laughs> um, I don't think, I mean, I don't really want to do a, a direct follow-up or sequel to The Wax Pack. And I think most of my writing ideas or book ideas are more in the science realm. Um, I don't really, I'm not planning on jumping into anything immediately, but um, most of, I mean, what I discovered in this process is that I feel like I'm most comfortable and at my best when I'm writing in, in this participatory journalism style where I'm in the narrative, which is not something that's that common anymore. And, you know, it's, 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 um, that was one of the things that I got rejected based on was like, well, why are you putting yourself in the story kind of thing? Um, you know, and you can't, I mean, I, I couldn't do that to the same extent maybe because I've already told my story, but I think, there are certain writers like in, in science, David Quammen or Susan Orlean, Mary Roach, people that are able to incorporate themselves in the narrative without being a distraction. And that's kind of the kind of writing I like to do. Well, George Plimpton would be very proud of you. Um, yeah, right. George Plimpton, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, anything else that I did not ask you? And again, I know you've done 120 or so of these interviews that you most want people to know uh, about this book. Um, just that I think one of the take homes is that it hopefully makes you feel closer to these players. And, and like you have, you realize that how, how much we have in common with them, um, as fans and that, you know, the, the gap between the fan and the player really isn't that big after all, because these guys really deal with the same things that we deal with. Um, so in a way, I think the book is, it's a reminder that, uh, the, the players are, you know, while they're special, they're not, you know, we don't need to keep them on these like enormous pedestals all the time and worship them. I mean, they're just people that have the same flaws that we do. And I think that's a healthy thing to look at that, look at, at, at the similarities between us. All right, Brad, thanks so much for your time. Mm -hmm. Wonderful job on this book. Um, the cover was fantastic. The premise, everything about it. Um, thank you again for your time. Congratulations. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. That was Brad Balukjan, and this is Life Around the Seams. Mm -hmm.